There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. The games don't stop, the talking points rack up, and we're here to get stuck into them. I'm your host, Melissa Reddy, and taking on the major themes are Chief Football Writer of The Independent, Miguel Delaney, and our Northern Football Correspondent, Mark Critchley. Guys, let's start off away from the pitch first with what has been described as a major global scandal. Now, Critch, you've been involved in the latest press conferences and such, and I know it's a mind-bending situation. But can you try and summarize what the state of players with Wigan and how we've got to this point? Yeah, I think mind bending just about does it. There's there's so many different angles and so many different kind of facets to this story that I think it's um, it's, it's going to be impossible to cover them all in this podcast. But I think it's safe to say that once everything's said and done, whenever that may be, this has the potential to be just the most kind of baffling incident of uh, kind of football, like English football, and, and capitalism crashing together and and like we've seen with Bolton and Berry before but this one just takes on a whole new a whole new world of, of weird um so I, I suppose if we start off everybody will be familiar with Wigan being previously owned by the Whelan family kind of a local uh family done good if you like that old kind of model that um you think of Jack Walker at Blackburn and and similar kind of beneficiaries at, at you know kind of in post-industrial towns if you like they sold to a, a company called International, the International Entertainment Corporation. It's a Hong Kong-based company. And uh, their chairman is a guy called Stanley Choi, who then became the owner of Wigan. And the other thing we know about Stanley Choi is that he's also a, a high-stakes poker player. And IEC, International Entertainment Corporation, their line of business is generally hotel, casinos, operations in the Philippines, in fact. Um, and so he owns Wigan for about two two and a half years, uh, and then changes the club changes hands in May of this year, just recently. They sell to another Hong Kong company called the Next Leader Fund, and they're led by this mysterious figure called Ao Young Wei Kai. Um, he buys them for about $17.5 million, and the former owners, IEC, Stanley Choi, they also declare that the same day that they've paid off a £24.6 million loan to the club. Um, that has been returned to them. So effectively, this new owner, um, the next leader fund, has paid about £40 million to take over Wigan. Despite that fact, a few days later, or a few weeks, in fact, the club goes into administration because they decide that they can no longer run it to any kind of financial success. And their reasoning for that is is coronavirus, the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's there's kind of two main players here in this in this in this weird story. There's Stanley Choi, who we all know about, um, this business owner, and then there's Al Young, and we know very little about him. Um, even the administrators yesterday in in the press conference, they they said that all they know about his history and his like kind of business background is just hearsay at the moment. In the document relating to Next Leader Fund's takeover, 
there was a line in there that said that Al Young has relevant experience in business operations and that was about it, which is always good to know that you have relevant experience, but it's not exactly the most detailed information that supporters of Wigan want to know. And I think there's another line in there about how he was operating an amateur football team in Hong Kong for 15 years and he won awards for it. Now, there's no kind of public record that I can find so far of this brilliant career that he's had in Hong Kong football. I'm trying to talk to people to find out more about it, but he's just a very mysterious figure. And I suppose there's two questions ultimately. You know, for, for IEC and Stanley Choi, it's how, how have they managed to buy a business two years ago, run it at a loss, sell it during a global pandemic, and then also make a profit on it and then get paid back on a £24 million loan? And then for Al Young, it's why would you ever do that deal? Why would you ever buy the club in the middle of a global pandemic and then only days later decide that you can't fund it? And there's loads, I'm sure people will know that there's loads of theories, loads of rumors, people who've seen the video with Rick Parry last week. And I suppose, you know, we want to be cautious. We don't want to get too deep into that, anything that's unconfirmed. But that's all part of an investigation that, you know, one day, hopefully we'll see the fruits of that investigation and we'll know exactly what went on. And the other thing is at the same time, there's a club to be saved. You know, Wigan have been given a 12 point deduction for entering administration, suspended. It could ultimately be the difference between them being relegated. There's been 75 members of staff who've been made redundant this week. Um, there is like some good news. There is some hope that there's been a lot of interest. There's about 50 buyers, three parties have, have given proof of funds. So the administrators hope that there's, there's, um, there's a way out there. The owner of Wigan Warriors has come forward and said that he's interested in, in making a bid and then the club will be locally owned and, you know, part of the same stable as, as the rugby league team. And they're two, you know, they're the lifeblood of the town, those two clubs, but it's, it's just an uncertain time. And, you know, I suppose, Yet again, it's this it's this corner of the country, the Northwest, and specifically kind of Greater Manchester and Lancashire, where you have these huge clubs like Manchester United City and, and Liverpool not far away either. But then you've got all these other all these other clubs like Bolton, like Bury, and now like Wigan. The third club of those of those three, uh, all three of the last clubs to go into administration English football are from this region. You know, all that we've got you've got those massive clubs, but then you've also got these smaller clubs and groups of supporters and communities that are concerned that they're going to lose a cornerstone of that community. And that would be, it would just be another tragedy. Miguel, this all raises the wider point of of good governance and having more robust checks in place. As Critch has summarised there, there's so many unanswered questions. And how does a club like Wigan get to the point where no one really knows who the owner is, what his actual background is? There's no proper history into it and the fact that he can put a club into administration so quickly after taking it buying it at a profit um during a global pandemic it's there's just too many things up in the air for there not to be question marks over how this has all been able to take place yeah um chris alluded to it there with some of the comments in the press conference yesterday where (laughs) <laughs> it's actually it is genuinely i mean i shouldn't really be laughing because but it's almost the absurdity of it that we can have a situation where we're talking about not knowing much about the owners uh, i mean even even that prospect alone is incredible because it's something we've touched on a lot in the independence but ultimately clubs are as, as, again as critch alluded they're, they're social institutions and that warrants a greater level of protection than 
than businesses because they are different to businesses. Even if they, even if obviously a, a huge pillar of football is, you know, where they have to be running purely business entities, but they're more than that, and they weren't more protection. And although the a bit like with Berry, although the Wigan case is a very specific problem uh, related related to the ownership, I think even that and the fact clubs like this are susceptible to these situations is part of a wider structural issue in English football, which is basically caused by a massive, massive uh, financial ladder with huge gaps in it, gaps that are really almost tank traps that clubs keep falling into because of the massive stretch created by the huge money at the top. And the top of the game sucks in everything. It sucks in all interest, which means it sucks in all money, which creates this cycle, which perpetually strengthens the top and leaves everyone else cut adrift. And it does get into these kind of desperate situations then where, you know, we, we have had our owners of various profiles. But um, I, I, I think, and I mean, even though those are very specific problems in these situations, they're all connected to this wider issue. And, and you know, we, we did a big piece in this in, in February, in in May last year. Uh, but it's, it's evidence of a pyramid that's no longer really working in the way it should. And requires urgent reform. And you know, and I, I, I suppose I think it's indicative that discussions like this of Wigan, again, even even though the actual Wigan case is so absurd in its own right, and there's borrowing so many questions and a bit and a big investigation, but it keeps coming back round to the, to the same topics. And one of those being uh, the coronavirus crisis was supposed to offer an opportunity for the word that kept being used was a reset uh, and maybe a look, a deep look at how football could assess itself in the direction it was going. And instead, I mean, we're not even out of the crisis uh, and we have this bizarre situation and sad situation with, you know, a proud local club. That's exactly it. And there'll be a lot of questions over governance that emerges from this. Like you said, there was always talk around a reset, but perhaps this, as you say, absurd scenario will actually force that into light because it seemed over the last few weeks that the norm was just going to to continue where the rich get rich, the poorer get poorer, and whoever, you know, whatever clubs go defunct or whatever, it doesn't matter as long as the top of the game is still thriving. Perhaps this situation will actually concentrate the powers that be on finding plausible solutions. But we can talk about that all day. Let's move on to the technical areas. If teams are a reflection of their managers, what are we to deduce from a few of them? Um, Miguel, you've been receiving a lot of heat for your take on Carlo Ancelotti. Perhaps people don't get your point on him. Can you explain what your thinking is around Everton's decision to bring in Carlo? I mean, my con- I wouldn't say concerns, but my issues with Carlo Ancelotti long preceded his appointment at Everton. It's why I didn't think it was the smartest move for Everton to appointment. I felt it was quite a lazy decision. Um, I mean, first of all, even if you, even whatever you, whatever you think about Carlo Ancelotti as a manager, his profile of jobs in the last two decades hasn't been the job that's needed at Everton. They kind of need someone to almost re-energize a club, a project builder. And Angelotti's never been that. He's kind of been a project facilitator. He's come in, you know, ensured that players perform to a certain level at big clubs and gone from there. I mean, there is a degree. If you, 
I mean, and this goes into the second issue about his actual quality, in which he's obviously been a great cup manager, as illustrated by three Champions Leagues, but on a league basis, which is um, what Everton really need here. And they, they, they need to, at the very least, consolidate their place as the seventh wealthiest and biggest club in the country in that regard, although biggest is a very subjective term in that sense. But Ancelotti's probably underperformed. In, the league. He's, he's, in 20 years, at the wealthiest clubs in pretty much every country he's been in, as Paris Saint-Germain, Real Madrid, Juventus, Milan, Bayern Munich, you know, given where they were at the financial ladder at the time that he it took them over, he's only got four league titles, and two of those were gimmies. PSG, after being taken over by Qatar, um, it, it, their first title after that, in, in a move that distorted both French football and football in general, and then Bayern Munich, when they're on this run, where, I mean, I think it's one area where Jose Mourinho was right, where almost a kit man could win the, the league in Germany, such were their financial advantages. Uh, so it would have been particularly bad to not win there. So And beyond that, two league titles. Um, in fact, he, he hasn't even finished in the top two that much. So in terms of his performance in leagues, I, I think it's severely open to question. Added to that now, in the last few years, he's not really the manager that he was at Milan uh, in the mid-2000s. In fact, I'm doing a piece on this this week about the whole idea of whether managers have a shelf life, how long their span is. Um, he's not even really a manager that, that won the Champions League with Madrid in 2014. If he was still that manager, the brutal reality is he wouldn't be at Everton. Um, because his the, the status of jobs he's got has gone lower and lower. And he, you know, he, he ended up being essentially being kind of trumped out of Napoli in that sense. Um, and now... I did receive a lot of backlash in regards to this. Everton fans saying, you know, about, you know, you're, you're bitter. A manager of Ancelotti's caliber wants to join us, but that's a problem in itself. Like, I'm not, but I'm not bitter about it. This is about what's best for Everton and how, and and as as a journalist, how clubs should be run regarding best practice. Everton shouldn't be accepting managers who basically just see them out, you know, who are dropping down to their level as if they're doing these clubs a favor. With the situation Everton are in, where they have six much wealthier clubs ahead of them, and certainly six wealthier clubs in terms of how they can spend that money as regards FFP, um, they need to basically think in a different way and be ahead of the curve. And to do that, basically, you've got to get the next best thing in management, not the last best thing in management. Um, and and, and in, that, in that regard as well, I suppose, a project builder, they've almost got to take the Southampton approach. Now, I know a lot of people pointed to how they've already taken the Southampton manager and Ronald Koeman, and that didn't work out. But that's not quite what we mean here. I mean, some, not, all, not every Southampton choice will work out. But in general, they've got the right idea, which is about up-and-coming up and coaches who have something to offer and have that hunger about them and are ahead of the game and have the latest tactical ideas. Because that, that has changed a lot. Um, just like I was talking about, about this to Critch the other day when, uh, I showed him. A, uh, I was looking at a clip of the 2000 Club World Cup between Vasco da Gama and Manchester United. And I remember at the time, uh, I was a teenager, I thought this was the highest level of club football possible. Watching it yesterday, it was one of the slowest pieces of football I've <laughs> seen. And like, but, but unrecognisable to today's game. And that's just when Ancelotti was coming into his peak. And like, So the, the game has transformed probably, probably quicker, at a quicker rate than at any point in history in the last five years given the kind of the evolution of pressing, you know, all, the, all the, the physical demands. So I think if you're a club like Everton, you've got to get a young manager who's on top of all that, that, that gets ahead of the game. And if that means that for a while you are seen as a stepping stone, so be it, because being a stepping stone can be a stepping stone for a club and get them up to that level. 
Um, and, and, and to return to the Southampton example, you know, they've, they've pulled off two very good ones with Pochettino, and now it looks like Ralph Hasenhutl. I think that's what Everton have got to think like. And none, none of this is to say Ancelotti will be a complete failure or like that. But I can't. I'd be I'd be very surprised if he if he does anything more than a par performance, which is kind of maybe hovering around seventh to ninth. Um, maybe that's what Everton need for the time being. But in terms of the potential of that club and really maximising it, I don't think Ancelotti is it, and I don't think Ancelotti is anywhere close to his peak anymore. I think he's a manager on the decline. I take your point there about not going for the last best, but looking for the next best. He has tactically, especially off the ball, made them a better side. Whether that's enough long-term, we'll see. But then moving on to Tottenham and Jose Mourinho. Critch, having covered Jose's spell at Manchester United... When you look at Tottenham now, do you see shades of that very same sort of fade and toxicity at um, just repeating itself? Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely hard not to. I, I suppose the only difference is that it's almost accelerated. It feels like it's being condensed into like I don't know, like a like a like a television series short or something. I don't know. Like it just feels like everything has been condensed into this like hypo turbo. Jose Mourinho, forget the third season rule. We're just going to do it in six months. He's taken that Amazon um, documentary to heart. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And, you know, fair play to him. He's a, he's a true showman in that in that respect. Um, yeah, I, you know, it, it was. I thought it was kind of strange the other night that even though they won, it was a dreadful game. All the talk afterwards was about, you know, just where Tottenham are heading under Mourinho. And those questions are inevitable when you watch them because they just don't feel like the dynamic side that we associated under Pochettino. And I think, you know, people are starting to ask very fair and legitimate questions about um, Levy's decision back in November when he decided to decided to appoint him. I think, um, I you know, if... There's a, there's a debate over whether you make a change now or whether that's ultimately too expensive. What I would question is how much is it going to cost you in the long run to keep to to have Jose Mourinho as your manager? Like he hasn't really made that much of an imprint on the squad yet. But you imagine that if, for example, the situation with Tangay and Dombele accelerates over the next few months and and he leaves the club then that is, I mean, I, I can't remember how much the fee was off the top of my head, but that's a significant amount of money that's suddenly gone down the drain. You then replace him with a, with a player that I would suppose Mourinho likes. And let's face it, his track record in the transfer market isn't great over the last few years. So that's, a, that's another few million down the drain. And you start to box yourself into a corner where you, you're basically trapped with this guy. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I do think the, the questions are legitimate. I do see the same patterns if just accelerated and I think a you know a, a brave chairman or a, a brave board member or director would would look at that and think maybe we actually made a mistake and we need to go back on it whether Tottenham are going to do that I have my doubts well again it, it felt it feels exactly like with Everton it was a vanity appointment it was be it was a club being seduced by a name who deigned to drop down to their level or what they what they thought I mean that's what it feels like um because even when even when when Spurs got Pochettino, it was a stepping. You know, he he was still a stepping stone manager at that point. Sorry, no, he he was an up and coming manager. So it was a kind of promotion for him to get the Spurs job. 
So in that context, Spurs have never appointed, or not in, in a recent history, and what the modern game is, they've never appointed a manager like Mourinho. Um, and so it, it, it does just, and when you consider his career, it is a drop down, but his, his career is dropping down. And what's, what sums it up, they're playing Arsenal this weekend. I was at the Arsenal match last night. Now, three weeks ago, that Arsenal team seemed an unmanageable, chaotic nightmare, as if Arteta was on a hiding to nothing. And yet, last night, I saw some of the best fo- some of the best attacking football I've seen in the Premier League this season. Uh, he's quickly, fairly quickly, figured something out there. But there's a lot of holes, and they're 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 possibly susceptible to kind of a classic Mourinho counterattacking game um, on Sunday. But it was still you would derive much more optimism and hope and excitement from what Arteta has there at Arsenal to the dreary, tedious football you see at Spurs. Um, so so quickly, so uh, and I and I think I think I think Critch is completely right that a brave director or chief executive would see what's happening at Spurs right now and think this really isn't worth it. And I mean, and the thing is, I mean, Levy's a, uh, an executive who's always viewed in the context of it. It's always about the cold hard cash. That's ultimately what it comes down to with him that he'll take that very academic mathematical decision on on what it's worth. Yet, the Mourinho decision could be very financially costly for them, especially if they slip away from the Champions League for longer than they need to because they've appointed a manager who is just past his best. I mean, let's not forget as well, especially in the context of the last week and all the, the same old rubbish we've heard about mentality. Um, when he got that job, he was telling uh, Levy that barely any surgery was needed. This was a team that, with just a little bit of work, could win a title. Not not even, and that's what he told the players as well. Not not even qualify for the Champions League again. And now a few months down the line, Mourinho's doing doing the usual act where the whole world is against him, where he's in this impossible situation where you know finishing 14th will probably be one of the, the fourth best achievements of his career, whatever. Um, but but that, that that that's already the language he's using. When 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 by his own admission a few months ago, and especially I think we were at this game quite really when. Spurs beat United 3-0 in summer 2018, one of the first games back in 2018-19. Wasn't Mourinho bemoaning that night the quality of the United squad in comparison to basically these hardened winners at Spurs? Yeah, no, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and now this squad is, you know, it's suddenly got the same problems as the, as the United squad. It's funny that. And, you know, it just... It, I don't think... Even with the squad Spurs have now, I, I think a good modern manager would get more out of them, much more. We mentioned Hassan Hutal earlier, Miguel. Do you think that a lot of clubs will be looking at him? I know Southampton have tied him down to a long-term contract, but he does seem the type of manager if Tottenham or West Ham or any such club that perhaps feel mm, maybe we took the the safe hands or the serial winner talk a little bit too far and, and made a rash decision, is is he the guy they'd be looking towards? If, if I was Spurs, if I was Everton as well, I, I'd be going for Hassel Newton now. I think he should be their next choice because uh, he's clearly got something about him. And as well, as, and I think this is something that's very important in the modern Premier League when basically the big six is boxed off and you could argue even that the, that the top four has been boxed off with how far City and Liverpool are ahead and now how much wealth... Chelsea and United have even comparison to Spurs and Arsenal at the moment, but it's important then I think if if a lot of Premier League clubs are ultimately going to be about just existing and being there, 
which, which is a lot of it, maybe the, the odd European foray, then I think it's all the more crucial that you have, at the very least, a style of play that is exciting, that makes that fans can identify with, and you know makes people want to go watch football. And I think that's what Hassan Hootel has. Because, uh, uh, all right, in the City game, they're absolutely battered. That was a classic back to the wall. But, but generally, um, they play quite exciting, you know, modern, frenetic football. Speaking of excitement, nothing gets supporters going like big transfer speculation. And the story really of this week, uh, I think of the past few weeks, has been Thiago to Liverpool. Now, the club have knocked down the talk. And while he is world-class, I, I don't think there's any question marks over his talent. Um, there are a lot of red flags against Liverpool's transfer policy, which is considered the best in the business. Miguel, you interviewed the Bayern midfielder in February. How do you read this situation? I think I think it is true, basically, that Thiago wants a new challenge, um, which is actually a bit interesting time, given that it looks like Bayern are resurgent again. Um, and you could even argue they're maybe the best club in Europe at the moment. Uh, but he has been there seven years now. Um, actually, as a complete tangent, th- this is one thing I always think of when I look at the careers of top players who could basically have their choice of anywhere in Europe. I'm always stunned a lot of them stayed so long at one club. I mean, if, <laughs> if I was that good a player... I'd basically, I, I, I'd be, I'd be kind of country hopping. I'd be, you'd almost do what Beckham did. Beckham, Beckham had the, the perfect career in terms of kind of the cities he got to live in, the cultures he got to sample for a bit. All right, had his kind of his boyhood club at United for a bit, then goes to Madrid, Milan, Paris. You know, that, that that's the way to do it. Whether that imposes on uh, Thiago's thinking, I don't know, but certainly they want something different. And the impression I get is they've been maybe. I think they might have been given some indication at some point that maybe a Liverpool option was possible and are kind of almost hoping it comes along. But as you wrote in your piece, I think it, it seems a very slim prospect. Um, actually, here's one. If COVID hadn't happened, would Liverpool have maybe been more likely to move for Thiago? It's actually an interesting one because I think... COVID probably means that they have to wait to see how the market settles and only make decisions towards the end of it. Now, they'll feel that they're in a luxury position where they don't actually need to do much. So they're not going to start panicking and waiting doesn't really do them a disservice. If it wasn't for coronavirus, I think Timo Werner happens uh, but perhaps with still that reduction in the fee, perhaps there would have still been some negotiation around it. Um, the fact that it, it waited and he wasn't given any indication that Liverpool were going to guarantee him the move put Chelsea in play. So with Thiago, the club have knocked back the talk, but because he's a world-class player, you ha- always have that, doubt in your mind of if things you know change drastically in the window for example if Bayern are willing to reduce the fee by quite a bit still because no one else has come to the table if he's certain that Anfield is his destination of choice 
if there's no better option at the moment and Liverpool think maybe we could get him in for two seasons and, you know, get the next best midfielder in the world after that. There's a lot of moving parts, but I think Liverpool will be comfortable in waiting to decide how those parts will fall. Um, Critch, United have been brought up as a new link um, for Thiago, and that was interesting to me because it feels like both him and Bayern are trying to do as much shopping as possible uh, to suit them and to benefit them. Can you see United making a move for him, given how well things are working for them in terms of their offence and midfield? I would personally be very surprised if he ended up at Old Trafford. I think, you know, you've seen that Solskjaer's made quite a lot of progress recently, not only sorting out his first-choice starting eleven, but also starting out his first-choice midfield. Um, you've seen Pogba and Fernandes come together, even though there was a lot of doubts about whether they could play together. I think it's been proven that they are capable of it. Pogba's a little bit more um, comfortable doing the, you, you know, the the passes, just the, the, the things that go unnoticed, shall we say, the, the slight passes, you know, through balls, stuff like that. Whereas Fernandes is more of an all-action player. And if anything, what they need alongside them is a kind of defensive foil. Um, they might have that in Matic. He signed a new contract. Um, you have Scott McTominay and Fred looking for a place as well, and they were performing pretty well before um, before this new makeup came into the midfield. And so you don't really think there's any reason for them to go for for Thiago. I know his ability in possession means that he's also a defensive skill as well. It, it, it keeps the ball from the opposition and allows you to protect leads. But I, I don't think that's what they're looking for. So I, I would be surprised if um, if they ended up going in for him. Let's switch things up and assess the gloriously tight chase for a Champions League place. Um, Miguel, Chelsea, an important result against Crystal Palace, but having been so comfortable in a game against a side with nothing really left to play for, there's big question marks over their game management and defensive solidity again. Kind of sums up Chelsea's whole season in that sense, uh, in that you... you... Oh, you feel they'll probably get the job done as regards the Champions League, but that they should also be much more comfortable than they are. And almost through kind of a series about structural issues and individual issues that are kind of a consequence of the structural issues, they're just, they're not that secure and they're always in danger. I think some of that is an extension of Lampard's management and the fact that he himself, like before all the talk about the brief careers of the young talent so far, some of their playing careers are actually longer than Lampard's managerial career. So I think he has a fair few flaws in his approach to iron out himself, not least uh, as regards the defensive side in his game. And that is manifesting in some of these results. But on the whole, I think he'll probably just about succeed this season and carry them through. But yeah, they're not always that convincing. And I, that does apply to the attack as well, in which sometimes, if you, like in contrast to the size of those, like the Guardiola size that Lampard probably does idealise, they're not completely cohesive yet. They're still a bit reliant on individual input, which is why maybe Pulisic as well has come to the fore and why he's been so influential. Because when they're struggling, he, it almost feels like he just bursts forward. There's a lot of excitement around Chelsea. You mentioned Pulisic there and the fact that they're adding to this offence and people keep talking about them as potential title challenges and stuff. But that feels so undercooked because... Can you really be considered as such when you've got Kepa in goal, when you are making so many defensive mistakes, and when you 
do not have game management, but any sort of uh, protection for that offense that you're building. Yeah, I mean, Kemp is obviously an issue. I think in an ideal world, Lampard would uh, get rid of him, maybe bring in Onana from Ajax. Uh, but it's not an ideal world because they've spent so much on Kepa, which makes him very difficult to offload. And uh, now, to be fair, I think he made a brilliant save uh, in, in the Crystal Palace game, which proved crucial. And he does have qualities, Kepa. So I, I think some of his situation is circumstantial. Um, although you would question the domination of the box. And of course, he's in a very susceptible defence. I mean, it does feel a little bit as if if Lampard is going to have these structural issues, he could do with a Van Dijk figure in the back line. Someone that kind of just pins so many holes at once. Um, Kante used to do that, but there's obviously all sorts of questions about his best role in this team. And Jorginho coming in yesterday... Right, another factor. And I could, yeah, it's, it's quite weird, even though Lampard has broadly done well, the very fact there are all these flaws points about it's he doesn't quite know what his best team is yet. Thanks, guys. After the break, we'll delve into the happenings of the Manchester clubs and assess the relegation battle as well. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's get straight into Manchester United. Critch Bruno has been transformative. You've got Mason Greenwood producing the kind of displays everyone associated with the club knew he was capable of. The attacking weaponry looks excellent, but is it masking a lot of weaknesses still, especially the rear guard? Um, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that on the basis of Saturday completely. I think, you know, that, that 5-2 against Bournemouth, you saw the Stanislas goal. It's a bit of a calamity and it was also kind of noticeable that it was the same two players who got picked out by Roy Keane um, in the Tottenham game, De Gea and Maguire, who who were kind of at fault there. And they're two players who are making areas every now and again and it is starting to get a bit of attention, um, especially in De Gea's case. You know, there's been so much talk this season about Dean Henderson's form at Sheffield United and basically a lot of questions over the past two years over whether De Gea is still at that level. Um, so, so, you know, there are some slight concerns, but to be honest, I think, you know, we talk about the defence, the attack mask in the defence. I think, if anything, the reverse was true before this little run of form that United have gone on. And generally, the defence has been quite a positive thing for them this season. I think it's like, in terms of goals conceded, it's I think it's the fourth best in the league. And I think if you look at XG and stuff like that, it's even better than that, perhaps second best. And it felt like even when results were going against them back in the autumn and, you know, the pressure was really telling on Solskjaer, they weren't ever really losing games by two or three or 
there wasn't there wasn't a all-around like kind of collapse in the team he was trying to build from the back and lay those foundations and you could see them there in the points that they were picking up the problem was that they were too safe in possession they were too just kind of one-dimensional going forward and that's completely changed now now that Bruno's come in so I think you know while you would like to iron out some of the creases that you've seen especially like last Saturday I, I, I am fairly confident in the defense going forward and I don't know if it's the area that you'd especially pick out as needing to improve upon. I think, you know, United's priority this summer, from everything I've heard, is, is still going to be that kind of right-sided forward that they've they've lacked for a, a long time now. And obviously, Jadon Sancho is is the number one target in that in that respect. So, you know, I, I don't think it's a barrier for them to achieve the goals of like Champions League qualification and and becoming a regular top four side again. But, you know, perhaps if they want to push for a real challenge, which is what people are starting to talk about now, given the form, perhaps it does need a little bit of improvement. Miguel, what do you rate they would need to be properly established again as Champions League regulars and a title contender? Mauricio Pochettino. <laughs> um, no, I think they need that to be champions. I mean, I'm still, like, I'm still a little bit unsure of this run because United have been through a few of these runs over the past few years. And there's been a lot of excitement about them. Now, the dimensions of each of these runs has been different, but like they've been kind of unsustainable. And I still have questions about Solskjaer in that regard. Um, and I, like, while I think there's enough about him and the club has enough talent and obviously enough wealth to be regular a regular Champions League side again, because uh, I, I, I actually I do think at the moment there is a, just with the way things are kind of playing out, there is a potential for almost a three-tiered top six, which is City, Liverpool, then Chelsea, United, then Arsenal, Spurs. Uh, so I think while Solskjaer is is fine for that, I can't I can't see a world where anyone other than Klopp or Pe- or Pep Guardiola win the Premier League while those two are in it. I think they're so far ahead of the other managers in it. Certainly, those managers at clubs of similar dimensions. I think if United want to be champions again. I think they've got to go for Pochettino. I, I, I don't think Solskjaer has enough to win a title with, with, with that team. He has probably got enough to be a regular Champions League qualifier. Whether it's enough for an outright title challenge, I suppose this is the question. And, and this is where the bigger questions come in about these this run and whether it's a mirage or it's actually the foundation of something sustainable. Um, I, my, I mean, my suspicion in all of this is that it's basically a case of being able to buy Bruno Fernandes and then having two extremely talented midfielders impose a more creative style in this game, or style in this team, rather than anything deeper. Um, although you, you could argue, to be fair, that Solskjaer has managed around the fringes not well. Uh, certainly, what, what does seem to be a strength of Solskjaer is that he seems to very he seems to be quite a good psychological manager, really a little bit like Zidane in that sense, and that the players all like him, and he seems to keep everyone quite content. And I suppose you can particularly see that with the attackers and the former Martial, um, how Rashford's been. And now, and, and he, could, he could well be the, the perfect type of manager for someone like Greenwood, especially because you're, you're, you're not going to get a better finishing coach than Solskjaer. Okay, Jamie Vardy is back amongst the goals for Leicester. That was their major problem for a while. Wolves were beaten by Arsenal to lose ground in the top four contest. Setting aside that City-UEFA ban decision, which would end up being significant for the team that ended fifth. Who do you guys feel 
takes third and fourth spot come the end of the season. Do you want to go first, Chris? Uh, okay. Um, setting aside the City ban, because I would like to factor that in, because I think it, they probably will get banned and it'll be three rather than two. But I, I think it'll be, in that case, Chelsea and Manchester United. I think Leicester are kind of crawling towards the line and they're ultimately they're not going to get there. I think I think United's fixtures, especially between now and the end of the season, are very favourable towards them. And Chelsea just have a little bit more, I think. So I think it'd be those two. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it'd be Chelsea United, three and four. Uh, I think Vardy's equaliser against Arsenal was crucial. Had he not got that, I'd have said Arsenal would overtake them, given the trajectories and given the games left. But I think that's just enough to keep Leicester in fifth, which I agree with Critch. I think could be enough to get them in the Champions League because I think I think Chelsea or City will at least have a one season ban upheld, if not a two season ban. Miguel, do you think that they would find a rebuild, which is already going to be quite difficult if the ban is not upheld? Um, it's just going to complicate matters further for them. Guardiola has already said he doesn't have the answers for for what's gone wrong. Well, Guardiola's positioned himself quite interestingly, even in that. In that, throughout all of this, his line has been, I trust what the club has told me. So that actually, if the worst comes to the worst for City, that actually gives Guardiola an out as regards his, as regards his career. Uh, and I do, I mean, there's been a sense of kind of ticking along, and there's, a lot been, there's been a lot of stories in the background about City setting up contingency plans for what happened in the Champions League. But, but the kind of... The impression, especially when you when you hear talk kind of them going for Koulibaly, is that it's going to be business as usual to a certain degree. But I don't think we can understate, or sorry, I don't think we can overstate the um, the how crucial this could be to the, to the future of the club. If it's two years out of the Champions League, not only will that affect a their financial potential because suddenly it's all that Champions League money being denied to them, and that at a time when this very FFP ruling prevents them kind of putting more money in, of course, you know, with that wider issue. Then added to that, so they're not going to be able to strengthen the club. You'll have existing players who will want to be in the Champions League, perhaps agitating for moves. Then there's been all this question about whether they can investigate their contracts if they're not in the Champions League because of reason, because they've had a ban. Uh, and then, of course, they'd struggle to have the financial clout to even replace those players. And, you know, it, it, could, re- it could have a butterfly effect for the club, at least in the medium-term future. Uh, and it's, I think it's why this is so huge. Uh, and, you know, for, for all I said a few minutes ago about Liverpool and City potentially being the, the top tier big two, uh, that's all dependent on Pep staying in his team. And maybe Pep, and maybe uh, this, uh, this Champions League ban being upheld. Might end up that Mauricio Pochettino actually goes there. But at the opposite end of the table, relegation, Norwich look done and dusted. Um, who are we expecting to join them? Bournemouth have to take something against Tottenham to have any hope of staying in the division with West Ham away to Norwich. Can Aston Villa get something against United? Who are we going for, guys? Who's getting the I think, last, I think last week I said it would be the three that are currently in the positions and I really was not prepared for that answer. I didn't realise we were going to answer that question and I just... <laughs> listed off the three that were in the bottom and, and justified it by saying I had a £10 bet on Bournemouth. But I think, genuinely, I was proven correct because it's looking pretty bleak for all three of them down there at the moment. I think um, my my logic for picking Bournemouth even a few months ago was that their running is just horrible. Like, they've got Tottenham up next and then it's Leicester. I think it's City away after that. Southampton at home... Uh, and Southampton travel very well as uh, as well on the road, and then Everton away. 
And the thing with Bournemouth is that historically and over the last few seasons, it feels like they're, they've always had a knack of picking up points against the teams that are around them. And that kind of allowed them to sacrifice games against big six teams when this season they've not held up that first part of the bargain. So it's it's kind of left them with, with no room to go. And, you know, I, I think it looks particularly bleak for them. I think Villa could perhaps climb out of it because there's still a chance that they could pick up a few points in some of the more favourable fixtures that they've got on Watford. I think are playing Man City as well. Um, and Arsenal, I think they go away to the Emirates on the last day. So those two, those final two fixtures for, for Watford could be crucial. But it, it really is difficult because there's the four-point gap between the bottom three and, and just above 17th and 16th. And really, four points at that end of division, it's just it's it's kind of a huge total because, you know, it, it, it's a win and a draw. And teams at that end of the league, they, they get beat a lot. <laughs> it sounds simple to say, but it's, it's just true. You know, the mathematics don't really work out. So if you've got that cushion, you can be fairly confident and... Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see a change of uh, identity of those teams in the bottom three between now and uh, the end of July. Migs, you don't want to chuck in your prediction? Oh, I said it, didn't I? Um, yeah, I, I think it'll be Bournemouth and Villa to go down with Norwich. Uh, I think they're being caught. Also, the fact, the way Watford... I mean, it's, it's, such a, it's such a bad race in terms of quality and in terms of results that the very fact the pure fact that both West Ham and Watford have won one game each in the last week and since the restart is probably sufficient now to keep them up that's all folks thanks for tuning in and thanks to Miguel and Critch for the expertise if you're a new listener to the pod please do subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts Spotify Acast or wherever you listen thanks for tuning in goodbye goodbye